Thank you for calling. Please leave a message. Hi, I'm Jamal. I work for an airline, and the new technology we're supposed to use is really frustrating. It's slow and glitchy, and I feel like I spend more time dealing with the system than actually helping customers. It's embarrassing sometimes, and I feel like technology is making me seem less competent than I am. Now, I'm wondering if I should try to find a different job, or maybe I can take more courses to learn about this tech. Honestly, I'm thinking maybe I even just go back to school to pursue something else in this industry. I'm really not sure what I can do here to level up. Ever feel like the rug is slipping out from underneath you? Like the job you used to know how to do has turned into something you're not sure you're even qualified for anymore? Most of us need some sort of professional development to stay competitive and effective in our careers. But what if that sort of training isn't offered at your job? Or maybe you want to find some new growth areas and learn the skills you need to advance to a new role. I'm Dr. Steven Stein. I'm a clinical psychologist and founder of MHS, a leading developer of innovative scientific assessments in the talent development space and beyond. I'm here to tell you that work sucks sometimes. It does. I can admit it, but it doesn't have to. In work therapy, we speak with experts from diverse backgrounds, helping us wade through some of the most common issues people have on the job. We learn how to go beyond just surviving at work and learn how to start thriving. Because if work sucks, how can we fix it? On today's episode, Reskilling is the New Normal, I chat with Jeff Melanson about how the skills gap originates. Jeff is a Canadian business executive who's worked for more than 15 years in the fine arts community and public sector in some of Canada's most noteworthy cities. Today, Jeff is gonna share his philosophy on how to find more security in any job by understanding how you add value as an individual. It's great to meet you, Jeff, and thanks a lot for doing this with us. It's a real pleasure, thank you for having me on. So I'm really uh, looking forward to our conversation today and, and learning more about this uh, skills gap that we hear about so much. You know, today we're, we talk about managing skills gap and reskilling. People talk about getting back to basics or what uh, I guess they call the talent gap. But uh, let's unpack this gap a bit first. What does this really mean and when does reskilling come into play? Well, it's a, it's a good question. It's a little bit shocking, you know, especially when you travel around the world and, and you hear about this labor shortage everywhere and you think, well, where did everyone go? You know, it, we, we didn't have this in, in terms of a uh, frontline series of press stories four or five years ago, seemingly. So I, I think what, what's actually happened is the requirements of industry have changed pretty radically. We have not anticipated how demographic shifts are going to impact how people think about employment, what type of employment they want, the employment conditions. So in a way, we're kind of the victim of this great system of education and talent development that we've built, which is extraordinary. If you think of like everything from the K to 12 system to post-secondaries to training, you know, skilled trades, colleges to private industry training programs, remarkable suite of opportunities for, for talent to engage. However, the modalities through which people consume training and are trained have shifted. 
right? We, we now have much more online training. Even, you know, I would say the last couple of years, there was a stat I heard the other day where before COVID, 5% of post-secondary students had ever taken an online class. And after COVID, of course, it's 100%. So th these are pretty radical shifts that are happening pretty quickly. So I think we've got changing needs of industry, a huge impact of disruptive technology, and then the modalities of learning have shifted. And we have not shifted our systems quickly enough to adapt to how particularly young people want to be trained and developed in terms of uh, next generation jobs. It's almost as though our schools are set up to train people for yesterday's jobs. Yeah, I, w I would say, and it, re it really is. There's great wisdom and legacy in how we've built these models. The, the challenge is they're so rigorous in some ways in terms of the design delivery, they're not that adaptable. And so it's very difficult to take under-resourced uh, school systems or education institutions and ask them to concurrently run the whole suite of programs they were running yesterday and also build these sort of new models uh, for tomorrow simultaneously. So it sounds like we're producing these, these kids, educating people for jobs that they're really not ready for in terms of what we're looking for in skills. So we call this this program work therapy when work sucks. How can we fix it? What do we do? How do we get these kids up to speed or get them into a place where they fit into our workplace? When we think about, you know, this concept of disruptive innovation, which we've talked about a lot over the last, you know, 25, 30 years, and, you know, the, the terminology was coined back in 1996. At the core of disruptive innovation is if you get too attached to what you work yesterday, you might be limited in terms of your imagination looking forward. The challenge nowadays, particularly with the internet, with artificial intelligence, the speed of, of change, is young people have access to information and resources that we never had access to. So they're entering the system with a way of being and with access to information that we didn't have. So what does that mean for education? Like how do you, you know, when you have a, a chat GPT capable of producing what it can produce, you know, what is the point of education then? Like, what, how do we pivot the point of education uh, in some compelling way? So I, I think we've got systems that are really awesome in terms of like scale and impact, but we haven't really thought about how to retool them. And we certainly have not thought about, you know, what are the young people bringing in with them um, in terms of technological capabilities? So have you seen uh, organizations that are able to manage that, to sort of match individuals to the right jobs, have the right amount of training, or scale them up to what they need in terms of fitting the, the jobs that they have to do? You see a lot of private companies that develop their own training approaches. So we're, we're actually seeing industry-led certifications, which are being designed sometimes in collaboration with post-secondaries, but really are being designed to meet the specific needs of the employer. Then we've got this sort of K-12 and, and post-secondary systems, which are, again, laudable, but are struggling to adapt as quickly as they need to adapt. And then you have the potential employee or the, or the learner. So what, what I where I think there's a real opportunity is to think about those e existing ecosystem pieces as collaborators and try to figure out, well, how do we wed together these labor market shortages, be they industry association, un union, or private corporation-led, with opportunities to graft programming back into the post-secondary system in the K-12? Because I, my worry is, um, uh, you know, we're seeing private companies do this pretty well. And I, you know, I'm sure you've seen the Microsoft certifications, the Apple certifications, and so on. But the question is, you know, how do we help by, you know, taking that industry innovation and connecting it back into the sort of post-secondary and the K-12 system. So we're getting a much wider audience and much more participation. I guess one of the questions is, how does someone know who realizes they have to be retrained, they're not keeping up? 
Do they go back to school, to traditional bricks and mortar college and get a, a degree? Or do they do one of these virtual trainings that you're talking about? Like, how do people decide which way to go? I think it's really so individual in terms of, you know, those next steps and where you want to go. I, I think what people are doing increasingly is thinking about where exactly do they want to end up and which program is between them and that spot and how do they do that sort of a program. I think, you know, the, the digital tools allow for much lower cost, much faster access to training pathways that can also be customized, right? So the other advantage of the sort of virtual world is, for example, if you're training someone on a piece of equipment, you can basically modify in the virtual world that piece of equipment without having to retool your whole lab every two or three years as technology becomes outmoded. So I think for people that are looking to reskill, you know, looking for, you know, whether it is a post-secondary pathway or, you know, a private industry certification, I think, you know, you have to sort of judge exactly where you want to end up. I think the, the big change in assumption is, you know, kind of twofold. One is we're living way, way longer, way longer. So in terms of meaning and purpose in life and the old, I don't, I don't know, you and I probably share this in common. I remember the whole Freedom 55 as this big sort of goal back when I was a kid. Oh, you know, if you could retire at 55, wouldn't that be great? And when we were living to be 73, that kind of made sense because, you know, you retire and, you know, you, if you retired at 65 and only lived to 73, you're like, I retire, I go on two trips and I die. 55 would be greater because you have more time in terms of that last chapter of life. Now that we're living into our 80s, 90s, 100s, and, you know, if you follow the sort of lifespan, health span research, I think we're going to see most of us live to be 100. That retirement age is now 35 years. So we're actually getting close to the point where your time retired may be as long as your time working, which will probably require us to work longer and we'll probably want to work longer or redefine that last chapter. And then for the next 60 years, that's good enough. It's not good enough. So basically the reskilling, upskilling challenge, it's not, a, it's not really a challenge. It should be a, a fundamental pivot in how we think of human development. And the fact that, you know, whether we like it or not, I think they say now the half-life of most university degrees is down to about five years. So, you know, you get trained up in a technical subject. Within five years of your graduation, half of what you learned in your degree is no longer relevant. So we're going to need to sort of, you know, constantly be training ourselves and constantly growing, which I think for most people sounds like a drag. But if you think about it in terms of your brain and your brain health and your development and your exploration of new frontiers and new possibilities, like this is stuff we should really make foundationally part of, you know, what is expected of us and what is offered to us as human beings. So let's move up the ladder a bit. You're talking a lot about frontline skills and, and uh, frontline workers. What about on the management side when we have to reskill or improve our leadership or management skills? Again, we're faced with that that question of, you know, do we go back and get an MBA or are we seeing customized programs within organizations where we skill people in management and leadership within the organization? I, I really like, it's a great question. My concern with within the organization is that whole old old concept, which I think you can build around of groupthink is a risk, right? So if you're within a company that approaches a certain problem with a certain series of solutions, and then you're training managers in that environment only, there's a risk if you're not bringing in outside speakers or outside themes of being a little myopic. So that would be the one downside that I would watch for in terms of building internal um, reskilling and management training programs. The idea, and this is, I've seen this, it's such a good idea, but I've seen it so poorly done, of externships, you know, taking executives and finding thematic changes that you think are relevant, but adjacent to your industry, 
and creating externship kind of um, reciprocal relationships with other companies, I've seen that be extremely valuable where you, you take one of your senior leadership's members, put them in, it could be even be like, you know, half day a week. It doesn't have to be like a full-time kind of environment, but you drop them into a different culture where there are different business assumptions. There's a different awareness of a market, which kind of opens up some of the blind spots that might exist within your own enterprise. So I would, uh, you know, if, it, what I like to see is people advancing those externship opportunities within a company, making sure there's real innovation happening. I think from a manager training perspective, you, know, you have to be very selective with training opportunities within post-secondaries um, and finding the right post-secondary given what your challenges might be or what the employee's challenges might be. So what about all these business school programs that we've seen popping up for leaders and management? Are they useful? One of the downsides occasionally at business school, having done an MBA myself, is you sometimes get faculty who write case studies and approaches based on what they've heard other people have done. And if you do too much of that as a faculty member without being in it or without being entrepreneurial or building things, you might miss some of the nuance of what made something successful. So I, I, the risk sometimes with business schools is if you're not in it, sometimes you, you, you sort of, you risk sort of aggregating best practice to such a degree that it's hard to actually say, okay, specifically here are the things that were the, the aha moments that led to that business success. I did a series of interviews with business school deans <clears throat> and I said, tell me about the challenges of running a business school. And a number of them said, you know, we have a faculty of business and we have a separate center of entrepreneurship. And I said, well, why do you, why do you have that? And I assumed I was wrong. I assumed it was to create two donor naming opportunities so they could go to market and actually get, you know, person X's name on one and person Y's name on, on the second building. And what a number of the deans said to me, not all of them, is they said, there's a real difference between our business faculty and entrepreneurial behavior. And so we try to separate the entrepreneurship initiatives from the business faculty because the foundations of business practice sometimes are not entrepreneurial. I'd be more inclined to look at innovation and entrepreneurship as a sort of inspiration I'd look to ingest in a business rather than sort of more traditional business practice, which sometimes lags. So if you're that person at work and you realize things are changing all around you in terms of your job, how do you go about figuring out what to do next? What kind of resources you need, where you should go for them? Do I go outside? Do I go inside? What do I do next? I'm going to give you my own personal bias on this one. I, uh, I love stoic philosophy and I love individual accountability. So I think if you're an employee in any environment, you should be thinking for yourself, how can I continue to add more value to this environment and how can I extract, you know, not, not extract in a, in a greedy way, but how, you know, if you, if you're constantly adding more and more economic value in an employment environment, you know, the question of your job security and your future and your income and your compensation is secure. And I think that's one thing that we have a little bit backwards in how we train people. We train a lot of people with expectations of what the employer is going to provide to me but not as much a sense of what do I, what am I owing back to my employer? And so that, that would say, you know, in terms of your question, you should, as an individual within a company, be really curious about what the company's doing. And anytime, you know, the CEO makes an announcement or you hear a speech or you hear a concept that's foreign to you, I would not think, well, that's, you know, someone in research and development or someone in marketing is actually doing that. If, if you're curious go online, Google the subject, do some of your own research. Again, not that Google and the internet's the perfect source for information, but you should be constantly curious about your company 
what it's doing, why it's doing that, and where you add value to some of those big strategic themes that are emerging from the company. So that, that I would say is a responsibility of an employee in a company. And I think as an employer, likewise, looking at these sort of themes that you think are coming that are going to have an impact on your company, and then saying to your HR department or your organizational department, how do we build the right type of training to address some of these things? And sometimes it's basic skill trades, like sometimes, I'm not saying basic, sometimes it's just more foundational frontline kind of use cases, but other times it's like, okay, well, we're seeing disruptive innovation and technology having an impact and opening up pathways here. And and I, I would say that, you know, the HR department coupled with the C-suite should be looking at what are the big themes and then how do we develop our own sort of approach to training? Okay, so it's it's almost like uh, there's no one size fits all in this uh, this type of environment. Uh, you mentioned that I like that individual responsibility or what you call the stoic approach. And one of the things we talk a lot about is uh, emotional intelligence and how that fits into this whole picture. How do you see emotional intelligence sort of fitting into that decision making and and how someone moves forward? There was this really interesting idea that I was exposed to earlier in my life, and it was this idea of your success is going to depend on what you do as an individual and how successful you make all those people around you. So leadership is, it's not about being smarter than everybody else in the room. It's about creating the conditions for the people around you to excel. And I think that's the cornerstone of emotional intelligence is really understanding, okay, who else is around me? What are their end game objectives? I can't control what you're going to do, like at the end of the day, but I can do whatever I can possibly do to create conditions for you to be a rock star. And I think we don't think enough about that. We think about, you know, the stoic thing, which I'm leaning on is like, I, at the end of the day, the outcomes of my life I can control because I, I'm in control of me and what I do. But how I go about creating an environment so that the people around me are really successful is super critical. So I would say that as another cultural value, I would lean into that one because the reality is, you know, all of us had someone invest in us when we weren't necessarily deserved of it, be that teaching us something, showing us something. We should remember that with gratitude and see that as part of how we should operate as people that we're there to actually, you know, put wind in the sails of the people around us. And so I think that's part of what the emotional intelligence piece is. And that, that can be helping someone excel when they're excelling, but more importantly, it's helping somebody with a bit of a leg up when they might be struggling a little bit. I think that's really, really critical. What you're saying really involves being aware of what your people need and being willing to train them. And I guess the other part of what you're saying is a company having a purpose where the employee feels part of something bigger and aligns with the goals of that organization. So you're, you're kind of applying some of these things might even be bigger than the training. If you get that alignment in terms of values and purpose, then you can train that person on the job or after. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree 100% with what you just said. So in terms of meaning and purpose, and it de- definitely if you look at next generation demographics, even more important. I think if you as an employee could say, I'm working for a company that's making a difference. And that company sees me for what I bring and values me and is creating a pathway for me to grow, which, which you know, it sounds super complicated to do that. But if you think of the the efforts we expend already and within our companies on these areas, like we're just, we're just it's kind of like what we talked about earlier, kind of like the school system. We just have some aspects of the ecosystem a little misaligned. And if we just kind of supercharge them a little bit, and, and I think, you know, having worked with lots of companies, there's lots of heads of human resources out there 
that are super frustrated because they're like, you know, at the end of the day, I end up dealing with pension issues and benefits and all of that. But, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm brought in when the big strategy discussions and decisions are being made. We treat the HR area as an area that just, you know, handles employee benefits and mediation issues and that sort of thing. But we haven't looked at HR as a strategic part of the contribution towards the company's success. We'll, we'll say we do, but in terms of what the HR department is asked to lead and tasked to lead, I just, I don't see enough compelling leadership in that space. And we still have that hierarchical model where the CEO of the company and the C-suite is supposed to know everything and they tell people what to do and they do it. So we're going to have to really change that model as things continue to adapt as quickly as they are, where you're building almost holistic, organic communities of creative contributors to the success of the enterprise. And that's going to require HR departments to be really dynamic. Like I think there actually should be a much broader understanding of how all of the human capital in a company contributes to its success. Not just saying that, but actually building mechanisms. And I, I think your point around an individual learning plan is a great point. So there's two things you really put in there. One is, is bringing HR into the C-suite, I guess, putting them front and center in terms of the organization and where this organization is going. But the second thing makes me think that in terms of how you're talking about the skill development, it almost doesn't, it's not about degrees or diplomas or certifications so much as it is about growing and learning the right skills that you need to get the job done. So this, if you had to choose between a company that's going to, I don't know, give me continual growth, that's going to help me learn about these new technologies that you're talking about and, and master those, as opposed to a place that's going to say, okay, you're going to be a leader in three years. We're sending you off to a business school to get a certificate, you know, to to build yourself up. You're sort of implying that this continuous growth is, is going to is going to be the real the real important thing that that people are going to look for. I think so. And I, you know, the the big difference in the world is we have so many opportunities in terms of like that professional development or personal growth. What does that mean to an employee? And what kind of modalities are going to best suit their development? And I can tell you kids today, their comfort level with immersive technology is breathtaking, right? So there's, they're, they're going to approach retraining totally differently than someone like I'm almost 50, someone who's 50 years old. Like there, there's, there's going to be a requirement as well to think a little generationally and to also find a way, this is going to sound so like Hallmark-ish or hokey, but I think we're making another mistake, which is we're hyper fixated on technology and we're actually not thinking about how to interconnect people with decades of experience with the whiz kids that have the tech. And I see that pretty much everywhere is like, because of the age gap in most companies, there isn't a lot of thoughtful design thinking around, well, how do you actually take what a 22-year-old knows and couple it with what a 62-year-old knows? Because there's actually extensive wisdom in the brain of that 62-year-old that needs to be baked into the technological solution. They don't have the tech knowledge the 22-year-old will have. And so we have to create really different models within companies to sort of facilitate best practice across the generations as well. And inverse mentoring. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, uh -huh. it's a very different mentoring format where like I can tell you just working with technology companies, there are young people who can build anything you would want to build in the tech environment, like anything. And it's a little overwhelming for someone as old as me even to hear like some of the, the outcomes because I'm like, show me what this does. And it's like, well, what do you want it to do? And you end up in this <laughs> kind of conversation where you're going around in circles. 
So for a 22-year-old who has that kind of worldview and a 62-year-old who has all kinds of lived experience and wisdom in a sector, it's in a way the 22-year-old teaching the 62-year-old about pos new possibilities and the 62-year-old teaching the 22-year-old about, okay, here's my 40 years of lived experience. Because if the tech solution drives over the experience, that's not good. And if the experience gets you into the, well, we tried that last year, we did that in 1994 and it didn't work. Well, things are a little different than they were in 1994. Well, that's great. Sounds like you've got a, a lot of great ideas and, and the great issues that we got to deal with in terms of how we fill that that skills gap and where we go in the future in terms of getting the right talent in the right place. And I like your uh, your emphasis on the importance of the organization, the brand, the purpose, and where it's going, attracting people who fit, and then lifelong growth and learning. That's been great. Really appreciate you uh, spending the time with us, Jeff. Thanks very much for uh, for being part of our podcast. Thank you for having me on. It was a real pleasure. Okay, that's all for my interview with Jeff Melanson. And while some aspects of the future of work can feel a bit intimidating, I'm pretty inspired by the idea of having a society where we're actually encouraged and expected to keep growing and learning throughout our lifetime. Reskilling is here to stay, and guess what? I'm here for it. My first tip for you today is to embrace that idea with me and let go of the idea that your college degree is going to carry you throughout your entire career. It might be a bit unnerving, but the flip side is that perspective opens up new possibilities for your future. Then, my second tip is to take some time to think about exactly where you want to end up next. Research what program or tool is between you and the future and start tackling it now. My third tip is especially for leaders, but for anyone else as well. Take advantage of opportunities to immerse yourself in different work environments and expose yourself to ideas from other fields and other work cultures. We all have blind spots, and seeing things from a different angle is sometimes the best cure. I'm Dr. Steven Stein, and I look forward to our next episode of Work Therapy. Let's make work suck less, together. Together.